Numbers 32. You know, it's really cool to me. I love studying the Word, but I also like kind of marking where we've traveled and, and seeing where we've been. And we are not far from completing an entire study of the Torah, which I think is really cool. Uh, the first five books of the Bible, the, the law, you know, where David says to meditate on the law, you know, blessed is the man who meditates on the law day and night, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. And when he talked about meditating on the law, David was talking about the Torah, these first five books. And we're just about done with book four, we're going to head into Deuteronomy, and hopefully the whole thing will be completed within about three years total, three years on the Torah, but I still think that's just awesome. And I'm excited to get to the end of the, of the book of Numbers, partially because it's a tough book to get through. A lot of problems in Israel in the book of Numbers. A lot of struggles, a lot of challenges, a lot of difficult things that the Lord does. You may have noticed that. He calls on the people of Israel to do some tough things. He requires difficult things of them. He judges them in certain ways that to us are a little frightening. Many Israelites died. As a matter of fact, you may recall the numbering in the first two chapters is a completely different numbering than it is toward the end because the numbering in the first two chapters contains an entire generation or generations of Israelites that will never see the promised land. They're all dying off. They will all, to a person with the exception of two, be dead by the time Israel goes into the promised land. It's a completely new generation. You know the two exceptions. What are they? Mad dog. <laughs> Caleb. Caleb, whose name means dog. That's right. And Joshua. Caleb and Joshua are the two exceptions. Every other single, at least male Israelite of that generation has died off. But when we're studying the scriptures, and especially studying the Old Testament scriptures, to be truly understood in their context, we have to take into account the nature and character of God. What I mean by that is we need to understand who God is. A lack of understanding who God is makes the Old Testament very difficult to get. If we don't know who God is going in, then the God we see from time to time, behaviorally in the, in the Old Testament, well, we don't understand. Some would say He's cruel. There are those who say He changed between the Old and the New Testament. Not so. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same God as, at, at creation as to today. The same God. The same exact God. Same characteristics. Same nature. He is steadfast. He is unmovable. He is without repentance. So we need to understand where His heart is. A clear understanding of His heart toward you and toward me makes the understanding of Scripture not only palatable, but powerful as we study through. So let me just read a couple of verses to you. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and praise is becoming. In other words, He's worth it. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Now couple that idea with this verse. Luke chapter 12 verse 6. Jesus said, Are not five sparrows? <laughs> are not five sparrows sold for two cents? We know our birds here are always trying to get their two cents worth then. <laughs> Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. 
This awesome, praiseworthy God who builds up, who heals up, who binds up wounds, who counts all the stars and gives them name. This same God counts the very sparrows who we would count as pretty much worthless. I hit a bird the other day driving in my car. It's one of those birds out there playing animal extreme sports. You know, flying low across the road and I saw him coming and I just went, oh no, oh no. Feathers. I didn't shed a tear. I just drove on. It's a little sparrow. What are they really worth? Jesus says a couple of cents for five. And yet, not one of them is forgotten. God didn't miss that the other day. For that, I feel a little worse than I did a moment ago. But, he also says, Jesus, making the comparison, making the leap now to humanity, he says, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. The hairs of your head are numbered. Now, in my case, that may be easier than in some of yours, but they're numbered. God knows us so well, so intimately. He is so in touch with everything going on in our lives, moment by moment, that even if a single hair falls off your head, God knows. You don't even know. But God does. This is the nature of our Father. Does it surprise you to know that where God is concerned, you count? You matter. You are numbered among those who He keeps His eyes on. You matter. You're numbered among His fold. I love this verse, Jeremiah 33.13. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. Now he's talking about the people. This is in Jeremiah. And they have just been sent to Babylon in captivity. But God is giving them hope and a future. He just said in Jeremiah 29.11, I give you a future and a hope. And now he says, hey, back in Jerusalem, back in Israel, the shepherd will again count the sheep. And he gives this beautiful picture of a shepherd standing there as his flock, one by one go by, and he literally touches them with his hand. One, two, three, four, five counting every sheep that's what Jesus does with his flock with us that's what our great shepherd does I am John 10 tells us the good shepherd I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep he doesn't just number them he dies for them I have other sheep now this is powerful which are not of this fold he says what's Jesus talking about he's talking about you and me for the sheep originally are the house of Israel. Those are the first sheep. And he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he goes on and says, I have other sheep, which are not of Israel's fold, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd together, people of God. Amen. Now that's the heart of the Father. The characteristic nature of the Lord to number His people, to count you, because you count. I count. I matter before the Lord. I may not matter sometimes even in my own household. It's been a busy week. Hannah graduating from 8th grade last night. Two hour moving up ceremony for 8th graders. I'm sorry, I'm done. Get them to high school and then we'll celebrate, you know? Don't tell my daughter I said that. <laughs> but there are times where each one of us in our own, own households, things are going on and they're busy and happening, and we don't really matter so much. What matters, you know, last night it was Hannah's night. She's what mattered. But not me. 
I just got to sit on that hard bench. I'm sorry, I have an attitude problem about that. <laughs> Two hours on a wooden bench, sitting there. <laughs> this is great. But I matter to God. <laughs> he hasn't forgotten. Now I mention all this again by way of reminder that our study in the book of Numbers is not about textual knowledge. Again, this is not a college study. This is not a course in figuring out scripture and being able to walk out of here and spout verses and say, I know the Torah and you don't. (laughs) This is about so much more. It's about spiritual understanding that we are numbered by the Lord and as far as he is concerned, we count. And Father, as we get into the study tonight, I pray that you would just bless us with that understanding. Lord, that you want to take us forward not so that life will be hard, but so that we can experience you. So that we can be among those who know you so well that as we're passing by the sheep and you count us and you call us by name, we hear your voice, we respond, we go where you say go, we stop when you say stop. Lord, we're under your authority. We are under, as we talked about Sunday, your cover, your protection. And that is a precious thought. And so, Lord, as we look at these things again tonight, and we study and we consider even the harsh realities of Israel in the wilderness, may we see them through your eyes and understand that your calling has always been one of compassion and grace and a desire to move us from where we are to where you are. God bless your word tonight. Send it out successfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 32. The people are going to begin to move into the blessings of God, the blessings that He ordained for them, the move, the move into the promised land. And they're going to begin to get their territories apportioned, given to them, their inheritance from the Lord as He promised. And the rest of the book, from 32 all the way through 36, covers their apportioning of the land with a broad stroke. Because the Lord wants His people to count, to enter into His promise with an abundance of blessing. And yet, as the people prepare to cross over the Jordan River, we hear from a couple of tribes who decide at this point, after all their years of wondering, that they do not want to settle in the promised land. It's unthinkable, it's almost unbelievable, and it's biblical. Watch this. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Dabon and Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sibam, Nebo, and Beon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, or literally cattle. And your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. I have that underlined in my Bible. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now, again, we're going to look closer at this on Sunday, but for now, look at it at face value. The land looked good. The flocks, the cattle, the sheep could be fed. The people of these tribes were settling in, and it seemed right. Reuben, Gad, the leaders thereof, and all the people, they looked around and said, this is a good land. 
We're right by the, the Jordan. We've got water flowing by. We've got green hills for the livestock. Our children are happy here. Our wives are comfortable. Do we have to cross the Jordan and go over there? This is good enough. They were settling. They felt good about it. It seemed right. But you and I know Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And for Reuben and Gad, this was one big fat mistake. As history will bear out. Remember this one thing. Of all these things we read, including in the old story, they're all given to us as pictures and types. We can apply what we see, what happened in reality, literally happened to Israel. We can apply them to our lives. The Bible tells us so. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.11 that these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Early on in the ages. Israel goes through all these struggles. The wandering in the wilderness. The call to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. Why? So that you and I, at least in this day can learn from them. They do serve an example for us. And as we saw last week in the battle against Midian, Moses' last battle as it were, it pictured for us the spiritual truth that we must fight to the very day we go home. That the fight doesn't end just because we're a little tired. That there's no such thing as spiritual retirement. You fight on and on and on to the very last day just as Moses was called to fight. Practical. It made sense. It's applicable to us. Life is a battlefield. I heard this just on Sunday. I want to share this with you, a phrase to remember. Life is a battlefield, and with different levels come different devils. In other words, God trains us on this level. We're doing fine. We get to where we can conquer these demons with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We get to where we have some stability, and then God says, All right, it's time to go up a level. Take it up a notch. But when we take it up a notch in our spiritual journey, guess what? New devils. New demons. New challenges. Harder stuff. Now we're prepared. We fought these battles down here. As we go forward, the battles will intensify, but we are also more prepared. Different levels. Different devils. And so back here on the border of the Promised Land, the tribes of Reuben and Gad stop short. They don't want to go to the next level. They're happy. They're content. They're settling. They're settling for second best. And Moses reads their hearts like a book. Verse 6, Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, 38 years before, gang, this is exactly what your previous generation did, he says. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. And so the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me enough. They did not follow me quite as much as I would have liked. No, he says, they did not follow me fully. And then he says, except Caleb, the dad dog, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, whose name is God saves, Yeshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. Caleb and Joshua, only two, that follow the Lord fully. 
Verse 13, So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He made them wander in the wilderness forty years until the entire congregation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place a brood, interesting, a brood of sinful men, and to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel, Moses is hot here. He says, for if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. Then they came near to him. Now, now stop right there for just a moment. The question we must ask is simple and it's the question that Moses is asking as he takes them back through this lesson of the last 38 years. Will history teach us nothing? Don't you realize, Reuben, Gad, that you're doing the exact same thing that your fathers did 38 years ago? We came to the border. Remember, we came to the Jordan. We sent spies across. And the spies came back. And Joshua and Caleb said, let's go for it. And ten others said, no, let's not. And everybody became discouraged. And everybody waffled. And everybody backed off. And you wandered for 38 years. That's what's going to happen again here. Don't you learn from history? Will we learn from history? Will we be numbered among those who follow the Lord fully? Part of the problem here is that Gad and Reuben don't want to go through the tough stuff of fighting their way into the promised land. They fought the Midianites. They fought Og and, and, and you know the other kings, uh, Sihon. They fought already. They're tired. They're comfortable. Their flocks are being fed. And their children are happy. It's a good place to be. You ever do that as a Christian? I'm just in a good place, Lord. I don't really want to go to another place. <laughs> Can't we just stay on this side of the Jordan where it's comfortable? My family's settled. I don't want to go deeper in the Lord. And that sounds uncomfortable, stretching, possibly even painful. Indeed, Paul said, 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I remind you again of the phrase godly. Because there are a lot of people who live in Christ Jesus who may never be persecuted because they just kind of live on the fringe. Saved, yes. Christians, sure. Showing up to church occasionally. But not going deeper. And Paul says, if you want to live godly, if you want to go to the next level, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be hard. That's the deal. But that's what God is calling us to. Yet Reuben and Gad want to stay on this side. And there's a telling statement in their request. Look back at verse 5. If we have found favor in your sight, they said, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Don't make us go there. Let us stay where we're at. Moses then points out in these verses following two critical things. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. Number one, he says, you're abandoning your brothers. You are simply abandoning your brothers. Verse 7, they say, he says, Why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? Simply not going is in and of itself discouraging to those who want to go. And it's the same thing in the church. It's the same thing as Christians. My holding back. See, again, we still tend to think that we live in a vacuum, each one of us. We're Hoover people, you know, or Oric people. We think we live in vacuums. That what I do doesn't affect anybody else. LaDonna isn't impacted by how I live my life. She doesn't live in my house. She doesn't go to work with me. So what I do isn't going to affect her, right? Danny's not affected by what I do. It doesn't matter. I'll just live my life, and everybody else live their own lives, and it's a lie of Satan because everything I do has impact on the body of Christ. 
What I do has an impact not just on the body of Christ in terms of the British Christian Fellowship, but on the body of Christ in this entire region. Have you ever thought about that? Your behavior, your actions, how you live can either be encouraging to the body or discouraging to the body. Let me read this to you. Ephesians chapter 4, you may be familiar with it. It's a section on spiritual gifts. And Paul in writing it says the following. In verse 11 it says, He gave some to be apostles and some as prophets. Some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Let me just ask you, do you feel like in your life you are living in the fullness of Christ right now? Have you reached the outer, the, the outskirts of the fullness of Jesus? Or better yet, have you gotten all the way into the heart of Jesus where you know Him so well that every moment of your life you live and breathe Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? Anybody? Then we're not done, are we? We're not even close. Paul says, as a result of, of this attaining to the unity of faith, unity is a key word there, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So your spiritual growth, your Christian growth is not just about you. It's about the whole body of Christ. And as you grow, so grows the body. And as you hold back, so the body is held back as well. Now that's a very unselfish approach to Christian living. To be considering everybody else around us as opposed to ourselves. It's a very selfish approach to the graduation ceremony I mentioned momentarily a few moments ago. Very selfish approach for me to sit there thinking about how sore my rear was, thinking about how tired my back was, thinking about how hot it was in that auditorium. Very selfish approach. Until my son Hayden sitting beside me said, Dad, it's hot in here. And I said, Son, we're all hot in here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm in it with everybody else. You know what? I mentioned that whole graduation thing on purpose. I was looking around at this room. I'm going to rabbit trail here a second. I was looking around at this room and thinking I've never lived in a place like this before. And of course, Oak Harbor, very small town. And in small towns, you run into people. You know things about people that you maybe shouldn't even know. I grew up in Southern California where you don't know anybody. You know, your best friend, you're not sure what's going on there. You just don't know. It's so big. There's so many people. You go anywhere you go, you're rarely going to run into someone you know. Just out of the store or whatever. Not so in Anacortes. Not so in Oak Harbor. And I was sitting there on the bleachers at the Anacortes High School. And I'm looking across at all these people. And my mind gets wandering. Yeah, because I was bored during the ceremony. And as my mind was wandering, I started thinking... I wonder how many people here who are Christians don't speak to each other anymore. I wonder how many people here used to fellowship together in churches and now they just don't. And what they do is when they see each other in the store they quickly decide, oh I needed milk. (laughs) And go the other direction. I wonder how many people here, and it's, it's so, again, it's unique for me to live in a place where everybody knows everybody 
And I think about this and I wonder, boy. I told Jeff D'Angelo this morning, I said, wouldn't it be awesome if there was just the church in Anacortes? There was just the church in Oak Harbor. And the only reason why there's a church in Anacortes and Oak Harbor is it's just kind of some distance in between. But, you know, a church in every town, that's it. As opposed to all the different churches. And you know what? I'm not slamming the different churches. I think God is using the different churches. I welcome the work of God throughout the body of Christ in this region. But I just got to thinking about how divided we are when we're supposed to be called to the unity, to attaining the unity of the body of Christ. And now it starts right here. It starts with me and it starts with my selfishness and my behavior. And what am I going to do to be someone who's reaching out as opposed to slapping away the hand of a brother or a sister? Well, back to this. Remember that last week, and we're talking about literally bodybuilding here, building up the whole body. And Reuben and Gad are abandoning their brothers. They are discouraging, just even bringing up that they don't want to go. The rest of the Israelites are standing around going, So we got it now, we're down two tribes? We're going to fight our way in? Without, that's kind of a bummer. We come all this way together. Now you guys are going to stay on this side of the Jordan. Remember, last week I said there are fighters and there are fidgeters. There are those who went to the fight, the twelve thousand who fought the Midianites, and then there's the rest of Israel who stayed home, waiting to hear what's going to happen. Fighters, fidgeters. The fighters got more out of the battle. The fidgeters got less out of the battle. In the same way, a couple of questions to process here. Is there some area of my spiritual life that I am rejecting because I simply don't want to cross the Jordan? Is there something God's calling me to do that I'm rejecting because it's going to mean a change in my lifestyle? It's going to mean a different approach, maybe to someone who I really just don't even want to approach. It's going to mean a different approach, maybe to how I'm viewed in the workplace or what I'm doing there. Is there an area, an area that I'm rejecting because I fear crossing the Jordan? Second question, might my spiritual wavering be a discouragement to the rest of the body? That's one that I rarely think about, but we probably all should think about more. Is what I'm doing possibly discouraging to the body of Christ? By the way, the leaders of Israel would later go on and be the greatest discouragement against believing in Jesus. Jesus used a similar phrase with them, that is the Pharisees, later on in his ministry, as Moses does with the sons of Reuben and Gad. Look at verse 14. Moses says, You've risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men. It's also translated a brood of vipers. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, 32, Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? You're discouraging people from following the one who has come to save them. Jesus is saying, and he calls them a brood of vipers. Discouragement. What is it that vipers do? Think about that. They, they sneak up from behind. They're, they're, they're biting at the heels and they're causing the forward motion, the journey of the people to be difficult, painful, poisonous. And you might say, well, Rick, I think that comparison might be a little harsh. They just don't want to cross the river. The vipers bite at the heels. And it's discouraging having two large tribes staying behind while heels are, are you know, they're being poisonously nipped at by your own family. It's discouraging. Besides, there's something else Moses warns these shepherds of. Not only are you abandoning your brothers, but if you do this, the Lord's going to abandon all of us. Verse 15. If you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Why? Because discouragement is poisonous. 
You might think, ah, they'll get over it in a few days. Once they get across the Jordan, they'll forget about us over here. We'll all be happy. Not necessarily. Because discouragement can seep in, it can seethe in, and it eventually develops into disunity and strife. And the next thing you know, another tribe drops off and another and another. Read on. Verse 16 says, Then they came near to him and they said, Well, all right, Moses, we'll build here sheepfolds for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place, while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants, inhabitants of the land. And we will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. We will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. Hmm. You read that and you think, well, that sounds fair. I mean, now they're, they're saying, hey, we'll still go. We'll still fight. We'll still be connected and we'll take care of this. We'll make sure everybody gets their, their due. We're just going to leave our children and wives and our livestock here. We'll go out there and fight and fight strong. And they thought they were doing their families a favor, but the reality is, gang, they were actually robbing their children, these fathers were, of the opportunity to see their dads fight. Now I think that's huge. The rest of the tribes, it wasn't just the men who were going to cross the Jordan. It was the women and the children and the livestock. Everything was going to go across and the men would fight and the children would be aware of what dad was doing. We talked about that on Sunday. Fathers taking responsibility in the household for their kids. Standing up and fighting where their kids can watch and as their kids can see what they're doing. Verse 20, Moses then said to them, Alright, if you'll do this, if you'll arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel. And this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And here's one of the most famous verses in Scripture. Be sure your sin will find you out. Build for yourselves cities for your little ones and sheepfolds for your sheep. And do what you have promised. And here's the deal with this. Why does Moses cave and allow this? Why does the Lord allow this? Because the Father will not take us further in our spiritual lives than we ourselves want to go. He's not going to push you across the Jordan. He's going to tell you to go. The promised land, the true blessings, they're over here. And you need to go there to get those. And I say, Lord, I don't want to go. And he says, I'd really like you to go. That's where the blessings are. Lord, I want to stay here. Okay? It's your choice. It's your call. I'm not going to take you further than you want to go. But verse 23 again is one of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's fascinating to me. Because Moses doesn't say God will track you down. The Lord will find you out. He's waiting. He's watching for you to blow it. You know the old thing? God's got His eye on you. God's watching. The Father's about ready to crush you if you step out of line. That's not the heart of the Father. Remember what we started with? The character, the nature of God. You count. You matter to Him. He's counting His sheep. He's numbering the hairs of your head. He is concerned for you and about you. He loves you. But your sin, on the other hand, is a very different thing. And this, I believe, gang, is a spiritual law that is as certain as the law of gravity. Your sin, my sin, will find us out. 
Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God forgives. Sin pursues. God even forgets. Sin keeps record. The Bible tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103 verse 12. Jeremiah 31-34 I will forgive their iniquity and this is absolutely amazing he says in their sin I'll remember no more do you realize that when you're in Christ when you have been saved and washed by the blood of Jesus that you go before the Father and you say Lord I'm so sorry for this sin and you name the sin and God goes what sin was that? I don't remember that yeah a couple days ago Lord I I did this and and, and I just I wanted to confess it to you and he goes that's funny what were we talking about? It's the one thing God forgets. He remembers everything else. But He forgets our sins. That's the nature and the character of God. However, our sin does not forget our sin. Our sin will find us out. Sin will dog you. It will track you down. Now here is the problem for these two tribes. Read on in verse 25. We need some history to understand how this all comes about. But 25 tells us, The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do just as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, all our cattle shall remain here in the cities of Gilead, while your servants, everyone whose arms are war, will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' households and to the tribes of the sons of Israel. Moses said to them, If the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, everyone who is armed for battle, will cross with you over the Jordan in the presence of the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. But if they will not cross over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And so the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We ourselves will cross over, armed in the presence of the Lord into the land of Canaan. And the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us across the Jordan, that is on this side. Verse 33, watch this. So Moses gave to them, to the sons of Gad, and to the sons of Reuben, and, oops, also to the half-tribes of Joseph's son, Manasseh. So now Manasseh has joined them. At least half of Manasseh. As a matter of fact, now a third tribe has split. Half of that tribe says, no, we're going to the promised land. The other half says, eh, we want to stay here with Reuben and Gad. Reuben and Gad's discouragement has already had an impact. Another half tribe is going to stay back with them and live in the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan. And their land with its cities and their territories, the cities of the surrounding land. It's not just Reuben and Gad now, it's half of Manasseh. And again, when I stay back personally, when I refuse to go forward, other hearts are quelled, others stay behind. Now here's a question I've asked before, and it's a really hard question to consider, but if everyone in your church, in this fellowship, was just like you... In every way, what kind of a church would this be? If everyone prayed the way you pray, if everyone was like you in in purity, in worship, in Bible study, in giving, in love, in relationships, if everyone acted 
exactly like you, what kind of a church would this be? Paul really encourages example. He did to Timothy, young Timothy, young Pastor Tim, 1 Timothy 4.12, he said, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Don't just preach it, Timothy. You live it out before them. Let them see in you what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul said the same thing to Pastor Titus in Titus 2.7. He said, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine and dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. You want a, a sure way to be an example in the body of Christ? Cross the Jordan. Go ahead. Keep pressing in to the Lord. Grow in your faith. Grow in the Spirit as the Lord has called you and calls you on. And by the way, the future of these locations in the Jordan can be clearly seen in an interesting New Testament story. I'm talking about the lands on this side of the Jordan, of of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, those who will not cross over. We track down the years all the way from this point to the, to the days of Jesus and his public ministry. And we're told in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, that they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now you may recall that story. They travel across, get out of the boat, and here's this guy. He's a guy filled with a legion of demons. His name is Legion. And Jesus casts out. But what happens to the demons that he casts out? Do you remember? From where they went? That's right. Into the pigs and we had the first bay of pigs. They rushed down the hillside off the cliff and in they went. In the pigs. In the pigs. Not into the cattle. Not into the sheep. Into the pigs. The Jews weren't pig herders. They were sheep herders. And cattle herders. But not pig herders. By the way, this word Gerasenes, when Jesus came into the country of the Gerasenes, the literal word for that in the Greek, the literal word is Gadara. In other words, the town or cities of Gad. What are you saying? Simply this. Now, it's not a place of shepherds. It's a place of pig herds. It's a pagan place. God knew this is what would happen. He knew this side of the Jordan would be overrun with paganism that side of the Jordan was the land he wanted his people in and he knows that when we stay behind we put ourselves at risk of paganism we put ourselves at risk of worldly living we put ourselves at risk it's not just that we sit, sit back you know and as my dad always used to say fat, dumb and happy just sit there hanging out no problem I'm in Jesus I'm fine no if you're just hanging out in Jesus and you're not going forward you are at great risk of sliding backwards and that's what happened to Gad that's what happened with Reuben and Manasseh this entire area that once was theirs as shepherds became a place a pagan place of pig herders we want our cattle to be well fed they said then get them across the Jordan. We want our children to do well. Then take them forward into the land. I think I've shared before that I didn't want to plant a church two and a half years ago. I was tired of church planting. I was tired of the sacrifice. 
I was tired of my kids not having a full-time youth pastor. My youngest son not having a full-blown children's ministry. That's what I wanted for them. And the Lord said, plant a church. I said, I don't really want to. He said, plant a church. I'm telling you this not because Cheryl and I had great faith. We just knew that there wasn't any other choice. But our children have done incredibly well without children's ministry. Now we have Laura Pierce as our director of children's ministry and things are about to roll with that and it's great. And we have Aaron and, and Kelly Chileski and Clark and Joni Donald who are working with the teens on Tuesday nights and they're having a lot of fun. But you know what? Corey and Hannah and Hayden, I, I sit back as a dad and I watch how they have grown and I thought I was sacrificing them to a degree not to go to a nice established place. I thought they were going to have to pay the price. And what I've discovered is they have grown phenomenally more than I think they possibly could have in some established place. Because God takes you across the Jordan and it's harder and it's more challenging. And if you want your kids specifically to do well, for your families to grow, go forward in the Lord even if it's hard and He will bless it. So the ensuing story of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh is a sad one, and we're going to see it unfold over further pages of Scripture as we go further into the Old Testament. Now, going on, where are we now? Oh, it tells us, verse 34, um, that the sons of Gad built Zebon and Ataroth and, and Eroer, and I'm not even going to say all the names, but you can read on down. Uh, the sons of Gad built in verse 34, and the sons of Reuben built in verse 37, and the sons of Mephir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it, and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. That's verse 39. And Moses gave it to them, and that kind of finishes out, rounds out the chapter. Now in chapter 33, we're going to look more closely at the entire chapter, um, probably a week from Sunday. But just for now, for tonight, it's basically the family slides from the family trip. That's what it is. If you look through it, it just recounts all of the journeys of Israel since they left Egypt all the way up to the very border of the Promised Land where they're at right now. Moses goes back over all of it, place by place by place. And he doesn't miss a trick. He covers every single place they visited. The Israelites could later go back to this and read it and say, Yeah, remember when we stopped at the world's largest ball of twine? Yeah, that's in here. That was at Pihahiroth. Remember that? We saw that. We stopped and got those, those prune shakes on the side of the road. You know, all those weird things when you travel? My family did that. We traveled all over the place when I was a kid. And I saw the weirdest stuff. You know, dinosaurs made out of spaghetti and I don't know. It's weird things. But that's what this is. He just goes through and he recounts place after place after place. Now, there's some very significant things in here that we're going to cover a week from Sunday. But I want you tonight just to see what I think is the most significant thing. Look at verse 36. It tells us that they journeyed from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin. That is Kadesh. Verse 37. They journeyed from Kadesh and camped, and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. Now something happens between 36 and 37 that if you're not watching carefully you would completely miss. God skips 38 years. He skips 38 years. They come to Kadesh at the beginning of their travels after they've been out of Egypt a couple of years. And then they journey from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor. That's 38 years later and the rest of the chapter details then their final journey and coming into the Jordan and crossing over to the Promised Land. 38 years skip between two verses. What happened during that time? Everything that we've been studying in the book of Numbers happened. So why isn't it listed there? 
Why don't we see more of what happened in those 38 years? Well, we know what happened. In the book so far, we've seen the whining about the manna and the grousing about the quail and the murmuring of Miriam and Aaron. And we saw the refusal to enter the land after 10 out of the 12 spies discouraged everybody else. We read about Korah's rebellion and Moses' failure at Meribah when he struck the rock. We read about the bronze serpent and the people being bit and the compromise of Balaam and the people sent at Peor with the Midianites and the Moabites. And now we've just read about Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh settling for land outside of the promised land. And that would be my review of this 38 years. I would sit here and tell you everything that happened, God, between verses 36 and 37, skips right over it. Doesn't even consider it in the snapshots of the family trip, of the journey. It's not a factor for the Lord. He remembers where we've been. Listen to this. He remembers where we've been, but he forgets about our sin. Isn't that cool? It's, this is a photo album of everywhere that they journeyed, and God's got it all, and he doesn't miss a single campsite. You know, all the KOA campsites, whatever those are called, you know, he knows everyone, everywhere they stopped and pitched their tents and got out their RVs and hung out for a while. He knows all of it. He lists all of it, but he skips right over 38 years of sinning in the wilderness because he remembers where we've been and yet forgets about our sin. And then, if that weren't enough, he promises to lead us in. Skip down to verse 50. It says, The Lord then spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho and says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When, I have that circle in my Bible, When you cross over the Jordan and into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all in the, uh, of the inhabitants in the land before you. He says, Not if you enter the land, then you drive them out. He says, When you enter the land, you drive them out. I tend to live with an if and then Mindset. God says, no, it's when and then. It's going to happen. If Jesus comes in my lifetime, no, 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 no. When Jesus comes in my lifetime. Well, wait a minute, Rick. You don't know Jesus is going to come in your lifetime. You're right, I don't. But I need to live like I do. That's what the Bible tells me. So John says, man, purify yourself. Look for the coming of the Son of Man. Wait for Him. Be anxious. Jesus says, keep your eyes open. Keep watch. Live every day of your life now assuming when He comes that you're going to be ready to go. When He comes, then I'll go. Not if He comes. Because the moment I start to live an if Christian life, well then I'm settling outside of the promised land. I'm not crossing over. When and then. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to happen. Isn't that wonderful? You realize that you are going to be glorified in Jesus? Amen. You realize that for all your striving and struggling and challenges and all the, the difficult things in, as a Christian and all the glorious things as well and all the growth that you will reach that point where you are complete in Christ. Amen. That you are going to move from the fringes into the heart of Jesus and He's going to come and take you home glorified and it's all going to be worth it. We'll be done. We'll be ready. Not if, but when. Well, he goes on in verse 51. He says, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, verse 52, then you shall, and he says a couple of things, there are four things actually, drive out, number one, all the inhabitants in the land before you. Drive out. Then he says, and destroy all their molten stones, or all the, sorry, all their figured stones, and destroy all their molten images, and demolish all their high places, he says. 
and you shall take possession of this land and live in it for I have given the land to you to possess it and if this was read in Israel today and in the Palestinian territories and understood in the United Nations we would not have an Israeli-Palestinian crisis the Lord says I have given the land to you to possess it here's the deed it's yours Israel what is a deed? Well, it's a piece of paper that has writing on it from the owner giving it to the purchaser or to the buyer or the, to the one who receives it giving that land to them, right? We have the deed right here. Written from God who owns the land and gave it to Israel. It's right here in Scripture. I have given you the land to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance and to the smaller you shall give less. Completely fair. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, you shall be that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. Now, by the way, not only did the Israelites not drive out and destroy and demolish back then, they didn't do it in 1967 either. What are you talking about? 1948, miraculously, Israel became a nation again. When students of prophecy could not understand how Israel was going to refigure into the end times, and boom, Israel's a nation again on the world stage. In 1967 was the Six Day War. In that war, for the first time since they lost it, thousands of years before, for the first time in ages, Israel actually stormed Jerusalem, took full control of Jerusalem, and General Moshe Dayan and his troops went on to the Temple Mount and reclaimed control of the Temple Mount for Israel. I've told you about this before. Soldiers were weeping. Rabbi Shlomo Goren was on the mount at the time and he was singing praises. It was an awesome, awesome scene. They had retaken the mount, the place of the temple, the holiest spot for the Jewish people. And on that day, Moshe Dayan, in a political move, though they had authority over the mount, gave religious authority back to the Muslim clerics. And no one understands why. Now, prophetically, it makes perfect sense. It's exactly what God wanted to have happen. You know, the tensions there are part of the plan. God saw it happen. I believe He planned the whole thing. But they had opportunity to drive out and fully take the land. Once before, and now again in 67, they didn't do it. And when you don't demolish and take all of the land, if you leave a remnant of sin there, if you leave a remnant of evil in your life, guess what? It's going gonna, it's gonna to keep coming at you. It's going to keep working against you. Most recently, Ehud Omer, Prime Minister of Israel, his convergence plan seeks to withdraw Israel from all territories to an indefensible position behind their security fence. A little spot to hide out, basically. It's unbelievable. In fact, just today in the news, Ehud Omer, at first, the Israeli government was saying, this is a unilateral decision that Israel is making from our own position of strength. We have chosen to set up the the, um, security fence. We have chosen to move behind it and to stake this as our claim. This will be our land and we will give this other part away. It's a unilateral decision today for the first time When the Israeli government said they would never do this, they now are entering into bilateral talks with Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority to work on this together, further weakening the strength of Israel. The Lord said, 
Israel, I've given you the land. It's your land. So how about us? Again, in our lives, are we driving out and destroying and demolishing every carnal, fleshly, and worldly thing? Or have we given the Temple Mount, that place of holiness, have we given some religious authority somewhere else? The holiest place in your life, who's got the authority over that? Is it you? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, verse 55 tells us, If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. <laughs> if I don't drive them out, they're going to drive me out. They'll become as, as, as pricks in my eyes. That doesn't sound very good. Pricks, what, what is that word? It's cattle prods. They'll be cattle prods to your eyeballs if you leave them there. They'll be thorns in your sides. And God made it clear to Israel, take the land, drive out, demolish, destroy, take the land. But listen, in God's economy, there's a motivational factor that must be understood. And it's, I believe, the greatest encouragement that we have out of our study tonight from the Lord. Read on real quickly. Verse 1 of chapter 34. Oh, quickly. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that you shall that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan, according to its borders. Now down to verse twelve, it gives specifically what those borders are. Verse three says, Your southern sector shall extend from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom, and your southern border shall extend from the end of the Salt Sea eastward. Your border shall turn. I'm not going to read all of this. Skip on down to verse 6. It says your western border and it delineates that. Verse 7. Your northern border is delineated. Verse 10. The eastern border is delineated. All the way from 3 through 12. Very clear borders of what land God was giving to Israel that they might inhabit and take. And these uh, lands will be uh, fairly divided up and apportioned among all the tribes of Israel with the exception now of Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh. Verse 13, now going on, says Moses commanded the sons of Israel, saying, This is the land that you are to apportion by lot among you as a possession, which the Lord has commanded you to give to nine and a half tribes. Isn't that unfortunate? Originally it was for twelve tribes, now it's down to nine and a half. For the tribe of the sons of Reuben have received theirs according to their father's households, and the tribe of the sons of Gad and the tribes of Manasseh, they've received their possession. Fifteen, two and a half tribes have received their possession across the Jordan, opposite Jericho, eastward toward the sun rising. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall apportion the land to you for an inheritance. Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So Eliezer, the high priest, and Joshua, they're going to be in charge of the apportioning of the land to make sure everybody gets it fairly. Says you shall take one leader of every tribe to apportion the land for an inheritance. And these are the names of the men. And now verses 19 through the end, it talks about Caleb, Samuel, Eladad, Buki, I like that name, Haniel, Kimuel, Elizaphan, Paltiel, Ahihud, verse 27, verse 28 is Pedahil. And verse 29 says, These are those whom the Lord commanded to apportion the inheritance to the sons of Israel in the land of Canaan. Okay, so what is the great encouragement? 
What is the great encouragement that if we understand it, if we know it, what is that great motivational factor to get us to cross the Jordan, to take on the different levels and the different devils, to fight the greater fight? What motivates us? One of the greatest encouragements I can give you is simply this. The Lord says, this land, this land is your land. You could even make a song out of it if you wanted to. John 14. Now I'm kidding, but I'm serious. And don't miss this. We're almost done. John 14, verse 1. Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. No, we're not so. I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. This land is your land. A place for you. A place where you will belong. An inheritance for you. He says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Two of the greatest tragedies in the history of the people of Israel, and I think they're the two greatest. Number one, they never fully realized the land. They never realized the land. That apportioning back in Numbers 34 that we looked at, that apportioning the land, they never fully realized it. As a matter of fact, and we've said this before, at the height of Israel's glory under Solomon, they only held 10% of the land that God had given them. He gave them 300,000 square miles, they held 30,000 at their height of glory. They had never fully realized the land. They still are not realizing the land that God has given to them. They're still shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and falling back Israel, the nation of Israel today, which is a secular state, much more than it is a spiritual one. They never fully realized the land. And as as they've missed out on 90% of what the Lord gave to them, they also have struggled throughout history. They've been the most maligned people throughout history. Two great tragedies. They never fully realized the land. And secondly, they never fully realized the Lord, Jesus Christ. They missed their Savior. Now, they will realize their land. Biblical prophecy tells us they will come into the land and finally have the portions that God intended for them. During that period, the Bible refers to as the Millennial Kingdom. They will fully realize the land. They will fully realize the Lord. At least a remnant of Israel will. We've been studying this in Revelation, that there is a remnant that will be protected during the harshest time in the world's history. And that remnant will fully realize the Lord. And once they do, they will be saved. Because salvation comes in the name of Jesus Christ and no one else. So they will realize the land and the Lord. And you have, you have realized the land and the Lord. Because Jesus says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come take you to where I am. This land is your land. It's the promise. Live by it. Cross the Jordan. Fight the fight. Live for Jesus. For you will know this land that he promised you. Amen? Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you so much for the things written in this book. For the history of Israel, Father. Even for the struggles and the challenges and the faithlessness. We thank you. We thank you for opportunity to watch them grow up. 
to see their problems so that we as the younger brothers and sisters can learn from the older and all their mistakes that they can be an example to us and Father I pray that you will make us an example to those around us as we passionately pursue you if you call to us from the other side of the Jordan Lord we will walk across and we will fight whatever battles you call us to not only so that we will grow in our spiritual lives but that the body of Christ might fill up to the unity that you've called it to. That's our great hope, Father. That in the coming of Jesus, and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.